0: Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Piringer. Good to see all of you this morning. We want to look in Scripture today. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, I'll read beginning in verse 18 here in just a little bit. I don't know if you're familiar with Fox's Book of Martyrs," something originally written in the 1500s to talk about those who gave their lives for Christ. There are some astonish, astonishing stories about Christians who suffered for the faith, and it talks about the courage and the strength that they have have. I want to share one small, tiny section of this in. In gigantic book, it's talking about what happened under Emperor Marcus Aurelius around A.D. 162 and thereafter. And he recorded some of these tales. He said that the cruelties used in this persecution were such that many of the spectators shuddered with horror at the sight and were astonished at the bravery of the sufferers. Some of the martyrs were obliged to pass with their already wounded feet over thorns nails sharp shells upon their points others were scourged until their sinews and veins lay bare and after suffering the most excruciating tortures that could be devised they were destroyed by the most terrible deaths an example that he gives is polycarp the venerable bishop of smyrna hearing that persons were seeking for him escaped but was discovered by a child but before his trial he desired an hour in prayer which being allowed he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented that they had been instrumental in taking him. He was, however, carried before the proconsul, condemned to be burnt in the marketplace. But the proconsul then urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? At the stake to which he was tied, he wasn't nailed, which was the normal thing, as he assured them that he would stand immovable. The flames on their kindling encircled his body like an arch without touching him, and the executioner on seeing this was ordered to pierce him with a sword. Another saint, Felicitatus, an illustrious Roman lady of a considerable family, and the most shining virtues was a devout Christian. She had seven sons whom she had educated with the most exemplary piety. Januarius, the eldest, was scourged and pressed to death with weights. Felix and Philip, the next two, had their brains dashed out with clubs. Silvanus, the fourth, was murdered by being thrown from a precipice. And the three younger sons, Alexander, Vitalis, and Martial, were beheaded, and the mother was then beheaded with the same sword. You hear these stories, you read these stories, and they are so foreign to us. Yet they were the reality of most Christians in the early days of the church, and it's actually the reality of most of the Christians around the world today as our brothers and sisters in Christ are being persecuted. And yet, these courageous men and women of the faith suffered for their Lord because they believed he was worthy. And it's weird to say, and if it wasn't in Scripture, I may not say it, but it is in Scripture, so I will say it. If you look in the book of Acts, and the apostles were brought forth in front of the Sanhedrin, and they were, you know, beat up a little bit and threatened and warned and all that. And eventually they were released. And it says that they went back to their group. They went back to the other disciples. And they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer on behalf of Christ. And we read something like that and we're like, say, what? They rejoiced that they suffered for Christ, yes, because they felt astonished that they were worthy to receive such a thing. And here we are, as 21st century American Christians, with our comforts, our amenities and we get annoyed at every little inconvenience that there is. And we equate that with suffering. Oh, the internet's not working right. Oh, I'm suffering. I'm being dramatic, obviously, or am I? Maybe the reason we're not suffering for the faith is because we have not been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. We can't even suffer little things around this earth. But there is suffering in this world, and we do suffer in many ways in this world. And at the rate that our nation is going, there will come a day we will be called to suffer for Christ. Will we be found so worthy? Will we be found worthy for that? You know, we American Christians, we too often have grasped onto the lie that God wants us to be happy, healthy, and all of that on this earth all of the time. God just wants me to be happy and healthy and wealthy and, and that's why the prosperity gospel has taken such a foothold, and we—we're Baptists. We're, we're Southern Baptists. We're conservative. We won't admit it. I mean, we won't ever preach that here, obviously. And we won't admit to ever believing any of that. And yet, I wonder how, in the back of our minds, we do. How often, in the back of our minds, yeah, God wants that for me. Talk to Polycarp. Talk to Felicitatus and her seven sons. What happened there? You see, the Bible and, and Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know, they, they, give, they give a different witness, they give a different reality. You know, we're going to suffer on this earth in many different ways. And yes, I mean, we, we, we suffer apart from the faith be it in families or sickness and, and the like. And sometimes we do suffer for the faith. The question is, how will we live when that suffering comes? How will we live when that suffering comes? As I continue kind of my study of First Peter here, and, and uh, all of our messages are on our YouTube page, you can watch them there. But what we find in in today's passage is that Christian pilgrims, that's who we are, we Christian pilgrims will be blessed by God when we endure unjust suffering in the right way for the right reasons. God will bless us when we endure suffering in the right way for the right reasons. Peter writes about that. I want to read verses 18 through 25. I just want to make a note that I am using a different translation today, the New English Translation, Net Bible. I found it to be very helpful to me, and I've appreciated its work, and I hope that it is a good complement to your translation that you prefer to use and study. And so I want to read verses 18 through 25 of 1 Peter chapter 2, if you'll stand in reverence to the reading of God's holy word as I read. These passages, this passage. Peter writes, Slaves, be subject to your masters with all reverence, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are perverse. For this finds God's favor, if because of conscience toward God, someone endures hardships and suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are mistreated and endure it? But if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor with God. For to this you were called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation, but committed himself to God, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we may cease from sinning and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you have turned back to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, I pray you get rid of all the bad theology we have in the back of our minds and Lord you just help us to see truth so that we are able to live lives that are pleasing to you and rightly rightly represent you in in everything that we do. So your name is glorified and it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Now for the letter, the epistle in general, Peter has said he started from the beginning telling us that you know what we are this place that we walk through this is not our home as the first song we sang this morning said you know this world is not our home we're passing through until we get to our final destination and so we are pilgrims we are sojourners we are temporary residents of this earth but even though we're in this earth and we're not of this earth we have been given a new life in jesus christ a new life that gives us hope a new life that promises eternal treasure but for a time we are here on this earth and peter talks a lot about how do we live with this new life in christ while we are journeying on this earth while we're here In our temporary abode, what do we do? How do we live out the new life that we have been given? And so he talks about living in holiness. He talks about living in reverence to God. And part of living in holiness to God is to live in a right relationship with the authorities that are over us. Now in the passage, that paragraph that comes right before the one that I read, Peter tells us to be subject or to submit to the government. Submit to the government's authority. God has ordained that while we are on this earth, there would be these governmental institutions that he will use as tools to bring order out of the chaos to hold back sin as much as is possible with their limited human ability to do. But he would use the government's in. Right context, if they're working the way they're supposed to, to punish the evil and to uh, give praises to those who do good. But now Peter talks about another role that comes with an authority. And, And the way that people interact with this authority, it's reflective of their new life in Christ. And so Peter talks about the relationship of slaves or servants to that of their masters and lords. Now, some scholars believe that somewhere around 30% of citizens of the Roman Empire were actually sl- slaves or servants. They became slaves because of war, you know, they were captured in war. They became slaves because they were born into it. They, they were servants because they, ha- they gave themselves over to be a servant because of some sort of financial situation that they were in. And, and the word here specifically talks about domestic household servants, And so while it was a different slavery than what we think of here as, you know, think of slavery here in America, that in no way denies the wrongness of the slavery of the institution, you know, that that he's talking about. It was not approved by God, it was not instituted by God, but it was a reality of a fallen world. Sin brought about this relationship. And at the time that Peter was writing this epistle, the fledgling church didn't have the power to influence or overturn this institution. But God's law gives specific detail how to rightly treat people, no matter their level of economic status, no matter their freedom status, if you want to put it that way, how to treat people rightly. But not everyone followed God's law. And so cr- slaves and servants became Christians, or vice versa, Christians became slaves or servants. How were they to live and act with their masters? The master had, still had authority, no matter if, he, if it was, you'd say it was legitimate or not, and so the slave or the servant was to submit to that authority. And, and Peter here says something, again, that kind of maybe makes the hair in the back of our neck stand up or whatever. He says, you know, be subject to your masters, whether they're good or whether they're bad. Or, you know, the Net Bible says perverse, other, other translations will say crooked, if, whether they're crooked or not. Peter then uses this idea of serving under a bad master to then teach how do you handle suffering. How do you handle suffering under an authority that is bad? How do you handle suffering for the faith? How are you to live as a Christian when you aren't living in the most ideal situations? When you're not happy, healthy, and wealthy. When you truly are suffering. How do you handle it? And so there are three quick lessons that we find in what Peter says. First, Peter tells us, that suffering for what's right is never wrong. When you suffer for what's right, it's not wrong. In verse 19, Peter tells us that when we suffer hardships unjustly because of conscience towards God, meaning when we suffer because of our faith in Christ and we suffer because we are living for Christ, this finds God's favor. God shows favor to the one who, who is suffering because of their conscience toward God. When you you suffer because you are standing strong in your faith, you are standing up for God, you are standing up for Christ, you are standing up for Scripture, you find favor with God. When you suffer because you choose to do what's right in God's eyes and not in the world's eyes, God sees that. He takes pleasure in your faith and in your endurance, and he is glorified by it. And he will bless you with spiritual blessings. You find God's favor when you suffer for the right reasons. You know, it's hard for us to grasp this. Because, again, we, in, in the back of our minds, we do not think God wants us to suffer here on this earth. We think that God will do everything possible to prevent us from ever suffering. And when we do the right thing, when we think we're living biblically, when we think we're making our choices biblically, you know, we st- we think somehow, yeah, I'm doing everything right, so everything in life should go smoothly, but there's no promise of that. There will be Hardships, and trials, and tribulations, and sufferings. Even when you're doing everything seemingly right. I read but one small, very tiny snippet from a very big book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and then it just kind of kept, new editions kept coming out over the centuries. There's page after page of people who lived right for the Lord. And they were tortured and killed for it. And here, Peter says, to endure that suffering on this earth finds God's favor. And we, we question. I mean, you know, it's all right to question. Why in the world would God allow things like this to happen to his faithful? It's hard for our minds to grasp. It's hard for our minds to grasp because we're so focused on the here and now. Here I am on this earth, and even though we know it's temporary, we are but pilgrims, we still cling so much to this earth and everything that it offers. So we are so focused on the here and now. We forget God's perspective, which is eternal and heavenly. God may allow suffering for many different reasons, and we can't list them all, and we, might, and we might not know the specific reason at the specific time. God may allow suffering as a witness against the evils of this world. God may allow suffering as a witness that would soften the heart of the persecutor so that they would be converted, come to Christ. God may allow suffering as a tool of discipline for a stubborn believer, God may allow suffering as a means of pruning and shaping a believer into something greater for the future. You know, within the context of the passage here, if a slave endures hardship under a perverse, mean, bad master, God may allow it for any of those reasons. I mean, he may allow it so that the master would be converted or may allow it to be a witness against the master on the day of judgment or to prepare the slave for being a greater witness in the future. But the suffering that finds God's favor is unjust suffering that you receive because you are living with conscience towards God. You live a holy life in reverence to God. Peter does warn us in this passage that there is a suffering that does not fall under this category. He says in verse 20, What credit is it to you if you're suffering because of your sin? You you won't find God's favor when you're suffering because of your own bad choices. When you decide as a believer to live in a way that goes against God, in a way that goes against his word maybe, and then you suffer the consequences for your choices, that's not the kind of suffering that Peter, you know, says finds God's favor. That's not the kind of suffering we're talking about here. And yet, you know, sometimes I just have to shake my head when somebody starts complaining about how hard their life is and how mistreated they seem to be, but what led them to that choice was their, their wrong choices or going against, rebelling against God's word or against, rebelling against God's will. The, the reason you are where you are is because you're rebelling against God. Now, thankfully, God shows grace in those situations as well. He is a God of grace, because guess what? We all rebel against God in some way, shape, or form at those times. And if God didn't show grace, we'd all be in a whole heap of trouble. But he shows grace. But Peter says, if you're suffering because of your sin, if you're suffering because you sinned, there's no... God finds no pleasure in that. There's no favor of God there. But, Peter says, if you suffer for doing what is right, if you suffer unjustly because you have aligned yourself with the word of God, you have aligned yourself under the authorities that he has put in your life, then you find God's favor. If you rebel against God or you rebel against the authorities that he has placed in your life, yeah, not so much. But if you... Suffer because of your conscience toward God. you find God's favor. You can never go wrong in the eyes of God by suffering for doing and living what is right and And, and Peter then gives us some encouragement. so it's like, "Oh, great, I can suffer for for doing what is right. Well, you know wonderful. but he gives us encouragement because he says. There is an example of someone who did just that. And you can live by example and get encouragement from example. So the second lesson that Peter gives us today is that Christ set the standard for faithful endurance for suffering. Christ is the one who set that standard. Looking to what Christ did during that time. You know, back in 1896... Charles Sheldon wrote a book entitled In His Steps, and and the plot of the book revolved around a pastor who challenged his members in in the church not to do anything in their lives for a year without first asking the question, what would Jesus do? Now, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, his great-grandson, did a retelling of the story. He rewrote the story for more contemporary times, and that's what set off the whole 90s craze, early 2000s craze of what would Jesus do, WWJD, and, and things like that. But the concept is valid for any situation, even here. So we ask the question, what would Jesus do if he suffered unjustly? We don't have to put a whole lot of imagination into it because guess what? That's exactly what he did. That's exactly what happened. Peter reminds us in verse 21 that Christ also suffered for us, leaving us as an example to follow in his footsteps. And then in verse 22, he reminds us that Jesus committed no no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. I mean, Jesus did nothing to deserve that treatment. I mean, to be honest, Jesus is the only innocent person to ever walk this earth. He came to his own creation. He came to his own people and they didn't receive him. They didn't recognize him and instead they crucified him. They didn't recognize the savior. They crucified him like a criminal. So yeah, Christ he's the one that suffered unjustly. And we do suffer unjustly, but we we we're not innocent. We might not deserve from a human perspective what it is that we receive, but we also have to remember by grace we don't receive what it is that we do deserve. Again, perspective. And Jesus is our example. Jesus deserved nothing but honor and glory and devotion, and he received a cross. He suffered unjustly. And what did Jesus do when he suffered unjustly? What example did he set for us when we suffer unjustly? Well, we can look back in verse 22 and look at, look at the first part of verse 22 from a different angle because it says that Jesus committed no sin. Now, it means that he did not commit sin to deserve the unjust treatment that he got to, to get the suffering. He didn't, but, but from a different angle, we read that. And what it tells us, you know, reading it back into the situation, what it tells us, is that he didn't commit sin in response to the suffering. He suffered for us, setting us an example, he committed no sin. He didn't commit sin in response to the suffering. When Jesus suffered at the hands of wicked men, Jesus didn't turn around and commit sin against the people that sinned against him. In fact... He did the exact opposite. He cried out to the Father to forgive them for, because they didn't know what they were doing. Jesus did not return sin for sin. There's first part of the example. We suffer. We are sinned against by government, by a master, by someone, because of our faith. We don't sin back. That goes. That kind of goes against natural tendencies, right? Someone's going to come after us. Boom! I'm going to go right back after them. Now look at the example of Christ. He did not return sin for sin. Jesus didn't allow his unjust suffering to act as an excuse for him to step outside the will of God. We also then see at the end of verse 22 into verse 23. That deceit was not found in his mouth, and when he was maligned, when he was verbally abused, he didn't answer back. He didn't answer back. Now, this comes from Isaiah 53. In fact, if you noticed that Peter sprinkles a lot of Isaiah 53 throughout this passage. But you know, just kind of in the background, it's not going to be up on the screen, but I'll just read what Isaiah 53 said about this. Isaiah said, he was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not even open his mouth. When when, when Jesus was lied about, he didn't turn around and start lying to other people. When Jesus was verbally abused, he didn't turn around and start verbally abusing them back, right? The passage says he didn't seek retaliation. I'm not going to physically do something to you, I'm not going to verbally do something to you, in return he didn't seek retaliation but what did he do instead i mean that's our natural reaction right i'm, I'm just going to boy somebody causes me to suffer I, i'm going back at them but jesus did the opposite he did nothing in in return he, he didn't seek revenge So what did he do? At the end of verse 23, it says, he committed himself to God who judges justly. He committed himself to God who judges justly. Jesus handed the whole situation over to his father, and he knew his father would take care of it. He trusted God would handle it. He knew for a fact what Paul would later write when in Romans 12, 19, Paul said, do not avenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place for God's wrath it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When Jesus suffered unjustly, he didn't seek revenge. He didn't seek to avenge his name. He handed it all over to God. The God who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God, He knew his father would take care of it eventually. As one author stated the matter, it's as if Jesus said, I will not carry the burden of revenge. I will not carry the burden of sorting out motives. I will not carry the burden of self-pity. I will not carry the burden of bitterness. I will hand all of that over to God who will settle it all in a perfectly just way. What would Jesus do in the face of unjust suffering? He would not sin against his persecutors. He would not verbally abuse them back. He would entrust the entire situation to the God who loves his children. And yes, sometimes God allows the suffering and you may not see the vengeance in your day. We unjustly suffer now, Lord, hit them now, get them. right? We may not say that verbally, but we're thinking it, Lord, one lightning strike, pow, get them. I entrust it to you because I know you are a just God, you are a loving God, and vengeance is yours, not mine. But sometimes God will allow the suffering to continue because sometimes God can turn suffering into something beautiful. And that's exactly what he did with Christ's suffering. And so one very quick last lesson that we see is that Christ's suffering saved us so we can live our lives for him. Christ's suffering saved us so we can live our lives for him. God used the suffering of Christ to save us. If Christ did not suffer the way he suffered, We'd all be lost. We would be lost. In the last two verses of the passage, Peter tells us that Christ's suffering entailed that he bore our sins in his body, on the tree, on the cross, and by those wounds we are spiritually and eternally healed. Christ suffered on our behalf so that we would not have to suffer what we actually deserve. Christ suffered and died to save us and to save all who would believe on him, and he would grant them eternal life. You know, some people just don't get it. Why would God allow suffering? Why would God allow Christ's suffering? You know, there was this rabbi named Harold Kushner. He wrongly tried to explain suffering by saying that God, too, is, is pained by death and suffering, but he can't do anything about it. And then someone wrongly said in response, well, if that's who God is, he should resign and let someone competent take over. Well, you know what? They completely miss it. They missed the point. God did see the suffering of humanity. God saw the effects of sin on humanity, and he did do something about it. He sent his son who died on the cross so that all who believe upon him should have eternal life. So then in that time of eternity, there would be no more suffering. Suffering for those who believe in Christ will come to an end. So there is a means for us to overcome our suffering, but overcoming our suffering isn't in the here and now. We overcome suffering later, but how we live in the midst of the suffering right now, that's of great importance. Will we endure for the sake of God so that we are, have a testimony, so we are a great witness to a lost world? And who knows if someone could come to faith because of it. Peter tells us at the end of the passage that our, our bodies may suffer, but our souls are in the hands of the shepherd and Guardian right shepherd and guardian of our soul this is our assurance our souls even though our bodies suffer our souls are in the hands of the shepherd of the guardian the one who suffered for us but it's not just something that we believe it's something that we live because peter says in verse 24 that jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we may cease from sinning or some versions will say so you would die to sin and live in righteousness. Christ saved us, not just so we can go to heaven. I mean, he did. I mean, you know, we do get to go to heaven. But he also saved us so that we would live a holy life for him in the here and now, even in the midst of the suffering. And therein lies a great divide between many professions of faith and practice of faith. How many Christians are theologically conservative, they hold the right doctrines, but they are practical atheists because they are not living out their faith. They are not aligning their lives with the word of the one who saved them. Christ suffered and died so that we would live for him, even in the midst of, of our suffering. Even when we are counted worthy to suffer for Him. Christ suffered for us. Is He not worthy for us to do the same for Him? Let me close with this thought. I read a story about a Nigerian woman, a believer, strong in Christian faith. She was out in the streets and she was sharing her Christian faith with some Nigerian youth, seeking their salvation, wanting them to know Christ. In Nigeria at the time, it was illegal to speak against Muhammad. It was illegal to try and proselytize to another faith. And so she was arrested and she was brought to the police station. There was an angry Muslim mob who surrounded the station, demanding that the woman be released to them. But the police refused. This mob threatened to kill the police and burn the place down if they don't give that woman over to them. Well, the police tried to sneak her out the back door, but this mob had all the exits blocked off, all the escape routes blocked off. Well, here, the police are surrounded by this mob. Well, they they run away scared and just leave that woman there. And she was clubbed to death. Beaten to death. This woman thought that Christ was worth suffering for. She believed Paul's words when he said in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. I wonder if we believe the same. You know, it's interesting. Peter began this passage by saying slaves ought to be subject to their masters. And suffering does not exempt a slave from being subject to their master. Who's our master? Who's our Lord? That you've got to determine for yourself. If you say, my master and Lord is Jesus, let me ask you, are you submitted to him? Are you being subject to Him, even if it leads to your suffering? If not, maybe Christian, you want to come to the altar and submit today. Maybe you are suffering and you want to come to the altar and find healing, strength, in the God who did not spare His only Son so that you could be saved. But maybe some of you here have never believed in Jesus Christ. He suffered to save you. He's the only way not going to church, not being good, Jesus. Honor his suffering by becoming his slave. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Walter Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.